right, let's go over a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, it's important to recognize that we need a number of men to stay after church on Sunday to set up uh, conference registration tables, seats, things of that nature. I understand we have uh, 180 registrations for being here. Okay. Now, every... we No? 190. 190. Okay. Now, we've had that number before. They don't all come all the time. So you don't, you, so it, it changes because of people's schedules and everything. So even though 190 may sign up and we may get a few other stragglers come in, um, it probably, usually we never have more than about 150 or 160 in here. So we have to set up extra seats and uh, we fill up the auditorium. So Sunday after church set up registration and display tables. Remember, this week we have Bible class on Thursday night. Next week, we don't. We learned after the first year when we did that 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 nobody has the energy left to do that. Um, And then Saturday, a week from now, on March 11th, we'll have men's prayer breakfast at 7.30 a.m., followed by by the deacons meeting. All right. And uh, also to those who've registered... And we encourage you to go to the deanbibleministries.org slash chafer uh, link, or you can just go to the conference page and then click on the top left and click on study materials. And there's a number of articles and other material there, some video links to YouTube videos and things that would just give you some background information on the kind of things that we're going to be talking about uh, at the conference. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. So that gives you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, confess sin if necessary, and then we'll be prepared to study the word. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together. We have the freedom to assemble, the freedom to teach your word, freedom to apply your word, and the freedom to teach others about your word. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for it is, as Scripture says, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So, Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we will gain insight from the example of Israel in the Old Testament And it will help us to build a framework for thinking biblically about all the details of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to start off today not going to a scripture, but going to uh, the results of a website. Uh, A year ago, in March of 2022, this... um, uh, Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University just released their recent 2022 survey on uh, worldview in America. And so their 2023 assessment has just been released. Over the last uh, several years, Dr. George Barna, who is a noted evangelical Christian pollster, he is quite well respected for the work that he does, uh, has become the uh, director of this cultural research center at Arizona Christian University, and each year about this time, they rene- release the findings for, uh, for the current year. And so a year ago, what we heard, and our topic tonight is the paganization of the people, and so what this reveals to us is how we have become paganized as, a, as the American people. So one year ago, 
in the March of 2022 Worldview Inventory, it disco- they discovered that the that most Christians in America do not have a biblical worldview. They really have a syncretistic worldview. That means they they pick and choose among different worldviews. So they they look like, okay, I like a little bit of this pantheistic worldview, so I'll take that. And I've got a little bit of this secular worldview, so I'll take that. And, and I'll mix in a little bit of this Christianity, at least the vocabulary, because that makes it sound better. And I just have my own little recipe and my own little mix. And that's that's the vast number of Christians. And so that's what they go on to say, that this syncretism is a blending of multiple worldviews in which no single life philosophy is dominant. And they conclude that only a sparse 2%, that's 2 out of every 100 uh, parents of preteens, actually possess a biblical worldview. So if the parents, only 2% have that, then in the next generation it will be 0.02%. That's how a country, that's how a nation, that's how a culture is destroyed, is because you lose the foundations. In the Psalms it says, if the foundations are destroyed, how will the people survive? That's the issue. So it goes they go on they went on to say, it seems that most preteen parents are unaware are certainly unfazed by the contradiction between calling themselves Christian but living in ways that repudiate the teachings of Jesus and the principles in the Bible. He goes on to say the polling reveals that not only are a majority of today's parents millennials, and that is the adult generation in America that is least likely to have a Christian worldview or biblical worldview, but that 94% of parents of preteens possess this worldview known as as syncretism. Everyone has a worldview. That's an, a very important statement. I have had conversations with people who says, oh, I don't get into all that philosophy stuff. I don't have a worldview. Yeah, you do. You have a ignorant worldview. You have a worldview that is made up of syncretism. You have one that that is not made it's probably not internally consistent because you haven't thought about it. But you live it out. What you do, what you like, what you don't like, your value system all reflects that you have a worldview. That's what a worldview is. It it, it includes your view of ultimate reality, your view of knowledge, how you know what is true. Is it ultimately based on how you feel about it, or is it based upon your study of Scripture? Now, that's a really important issue. And um, recently, and I know I've taught this before, you know, some things you just drop out through the cracks somewhere. But in the early 1600s, you had a Jesuit mathematician by the name of René Descartes. And what he is known for is his analysis of how to know that something really exists. He had the idea that what if everything that I think I see is just a figment of my imagination? Maybe it doesn't really exist. Maybe y'all aren't there. Maybe there's there's nothing. Maybe maybe I don't even exist. How do I prove that anything is exist and I'm not just a figment of God's imagination? And then he recognized that because he had self-consciousness that he, that he must exist. So his conclusion was expressed as, I, um, I think, therefore I am. And that was earth-shattering because what that did was it shifted the basis for knowledge away from the Creator, away from God, to man. This is in early 1600. So since the time of Christ in Christianity, there was the understanding that God is omniscient and that we're created in the image of God and human knowledge is a part 
of God's omniscience because God knows all the knowable. So there's nothing that human beings learn that isn't part of God's knowledge. And so we have to think about knowledge in terms of its ultimate reference point and where it ultimately derives. But when you shift it by saying, I think, therefore I am, ultimate knowledge, the ultimate basis for knowledge is my self-consciousness. It's not God. In now this, the source of knowledge and the, and the approbation of truth, the validation of truth, comes not from God, the creator, but from me, the creature. So now you're ultimately putting the creature in the place of the creator. And that's what Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 1. You're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So that shift is very important. And it's important for people to understand. And so we have a culture. What's happened since Descartes 400 years ago is that that belief system has gone to seed. And everything that we see today is the outworking. And it took 400 years. But the outworking in our culture of the assumptions inherent in that. And so everybody is the source of their own knowledge. So everybody has their own opinion. Everybody has their own view. Everybody has their own truth. Everybody has their own value system, right and wrong. But that didn't really start with Descartes. Descartes gave it the philosophical basis, but it was preceded by what? By Eve in the garden. She looks at the fruit when the serpent says that, well, God just told you that, you won't die. And she looked at it and saw that it was good to eat. She became the focal point of deciding what was right or wrong. So this is the essence of the sin nature. But Descartes gave it a philosophical respectability that that is ripe in a historic environment where uh, due to the Reformation, as sort of an unintended consequence, people threw off the authority of the church, but they did not understand that the authority of the church, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church, was not the same as the authority of the Bible. Okay, so they, they threw, out the, threw out both. So... Barna writes, everyone has a worldview. Typically, it's fully developed and operational before they reach their teen years. So if you start trying to teach this material to your 14, 15, 16-year-old, guess what? Too late. You've missed the opportunity for the previous 14, 15, 16 years. And parents, I keep saying this, parents have to start, when you bring the baby home, you start to read scripture, you play good hymns, you play good music, you read the Bible to them, because you're formatting their brain. That with what they hear, their, their brains are, are grabbing for vocabulary, and it's set the state. They may not say their first word for a year and a half or two. I've heard of some people who don't even speak till they're four, and then it's in complete sentences. But you have to start formatting them with the Scripture. So in February of this year, this morning, this hit my inbox. They released their 2023 findings, and they, they opened with this paragraph. The COVID-19 lockdowns and lifestyle changes that began in early 2020 provided Americans with an opportunity to spend more time doing things their hectic, on-the-go lives precluded, such as reading the Bible. But they didn't. But it appears that as people's lives were substantially altered by the virus and government policies, Americans were not spending the extra time devoting energy to spiritual matters and worldview enhancements. So they discovered a couple of things. They discovered that the incidence, that is the number, the percentage of Americans that held to a biblical worldview was cut from 6% to 4%. One-third of Americans decided to ditch their biblical worldview. And th this is backed by var various 
studies. So here's a chart that they have, and what this shows is that they have three types of people. They have those who are integrated uh, disciples. These are those who possess a biblical worldview uh, based on um, based on their their they have a, a questionnaire that they fill out and based on their scores related to beliefs and behavior. But in 20, 2026% of Americans had a, integrated a biblical worldview into their thinking. 6%. Emergent followers are those who possess a significant portion of a biblical worldview based on scores related to beliefs and behaviors, but not enough to qualify as having a biblical worldview. See, they're syncretists. They may have 70% biblical worldview, but then they really like some of the things that are going on with with uh, relativism and secular humanism and a few things like that. So they've adopted a lot of paganism into their thinking so they don't qualify as having a biblical worldview. In 2020, 25% had uh, of emergent followers had a, had a significant portion of a biblical worldview, and that's reduced almost by half to 14% now. And then you have a category of people called world citizens. They possess a worldview other than a biblical worldview, but they might have a few beliefs and behaviors that are consistent with biblical principles. That was 69% in 2020, and that has increased to 82% today. So that means you've had those who were disciples who've decided to become world citizens, and you've had others who were emergent followers who have become world citizens. So what you've seen is people who have become apostate and in their thinking. And they're still probably going to the same church and singing the same little ditties on Sunday morning and other things like that. And so they're not being challenged uh, by the Word of God. There's a number of other findings, and Barb is going to put the link to this up on the uh, uh, website uh, for the uh, for the lesson tonight, so you can look it up. But I found a couple of things interesting to share. Most Americans, 68% of Americans, consider themselves to be Christians. Among these self-defined Christians, though, only 6% have a biblical worldview. And then the next statement is erroneous because they don't get the gospel right. But a lot of Christians who are saved don't get the gospel quite right because they've been influenced by lordship salvation, which is what this reflects. It says, less than half of the self-defined Christians can be classified as born again and they define that as, A, believing that they will go to heaven after they die, but only because they have confessed their sins. That has nothing to do with getting saved. But they uh, have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They're confused, but they're saved. So less than half of self-defined Christians are probably actually saved. So that reduces the number of, of Americans who are actually saved Christians down to about 34%. Within the born-again population, they say just six, just 33% of the adult population, a shockingly small proportion, only 13% of that 33%, hold a biblical worldview. That is because, of se- for several reasons, the most significant is the lack of sound biblical teaching in pulpits today. And this is, um, uh, th- this is terrible because churches don't understand that their role is to equip people to handle the issues of life by teaching them the Word of God, and they're not doing it. Uh, one of, they give several talking points. I'm just going to hit uh, one of them towards the end. It says, among adults who are consistently conservative on political matters, 12% are integrated disciples. In contrast, just 2% who are consistently moderate on political issues, and 1% of political liberals and progressives have a biblical worldview. I would say those two categories, are those, that 1%, 2% are seriously confused. 
Another thing they say, that people do not develop a worldview randomly or by default. The impact of arts and entertainment, government and public schools is clearly apparent in the shift away from biblical perspectives to a more experiential and emotional form of decision-making. It will require parents in particular and cultural leaders who care about this matter to energetically and creatively persuade children and their influencers to embrace biblical principles as the foundation for personal decision-making. See, when you're making your decision based on emotion and how you feel, you're really functioning as a liberal. Liberal religion, liberal Christianity started with a man, a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, who didn't believe the Bible was credible at all. But he said, we can't really live like that. So what you have to go to for validation is how it makes you feel. And he made emotion the criteria. And so when you're functioning on your emotion for making decisions for what you think is right or what you think is wrong, well, it may be, maybe I just felt good about it. You're, you're a functional pantheist and mystic. You're not a functional Christian. So that helps us to understand what happened to the generation, the generations of the of the judges and the people is they had become functional. They, they still talked about Yahweh. They still went through the motions, but they are functional pagans. That's their value system. That's why Judges says that there was no king in Israel at that time. But everyone did what was right in their eyes. Every, and when you have everybody doing the, what operating on a, the, the value system of their own subjective feeling, your your families are going to just fall apart. Marriages can't survive. Your culture is going to fall apart because everybody's become God. And they don't got and by definition a God doesn't want any competition. And so they just they're antagonistic to everybody and the whole culture just implodes and fragments. So what do we have to do to solve this? There's only one solution, and that's the Word of God. And what there has to be is a shift, a major shift. And I'll tell you something. I don't believe it's going to happen. But there has to be a major and massive shift to biblical content coming out of the pulpits of America and the lecterns in the Sunday school classes. That is, that's the only thing uh, that we really that we really have and that we really can go to. So one of the things that I am emphasizing is that we're going to have a little change here in about maybe five or six weeks when we end Judges. What are we going to do when we finish Judges? Well, I'm faced with a dilemma because I can't teach any more than I'm currently teaching. And we're seeing a generational shift taking place in the church in that we have had, for example, Mark Friedrich, who's just done a phenomenal and outstanding job over the last uh, 18, 19 years as the director of prep school. And now we have two younger men coming in, and they are uh, they're going to be working to establish what we need to do to go forward. And I'm working with them. And one of the things that I've been doing with them, because the, the approach that we have had from the beginning, uh, the ideal for our prep school, is that uh, somebody who goes from diapers to diploma from high school is going to go through the Bible about five or six times in those years. And each time they go through it, it's going to be a different level. It's going to be a little more detailed, and it's going to be you know modeled for their... Uh, their age group and their uh, their uh, intellectual skill level, and so when you start off and they're two, or <coughs> excuse me, they're two or three years old, then basically you just tell a lot of Bible stories, very simple, five ten minutes, 
But you, but they get, be, they go on a familiarization tour. They learn about Adam and Adam and Eve and sin and the serpent, and they learn about the Noah's flood, and they learn about Abraham, and they learn about um, Isaac and Joseph and his coat of many colors, and Moses and the Red Sea, and all these different key events as you go through Scripture. And then um, you're, you're not teaching them anything heavy because at that age, all you hope for is that the second or third time around, they're going to recognize the name of Adam and Eve again. Okay, so you just take, teach the same thing every year. And gradually, by the time they get to be about five or six, a few things are going to start clicking. And then you can take add a little more detail to it and a little more texture to it. And at the same time, ideally what we want is to recognize that already in, at preschool and in uh, kindergarten, what they are being exposed to is things like, okay, well, we need to be more ecologically responsible and environmentally sensitive, and so we need to do this and we need to do that. We need to uh, present a biblical worldview of God's creation and that God sustains things and what what Christians should do to be responsible because a Christian view of creation and God's environment is not the same base that you have in the system around. Now, at points it may sound the same, but their system comes out of pantheism and they're worshiping nature, worshiping God's creation, because that's what the Bible says. You worship the creature or the creation rather than the creator. And so we have to be preparing these kids for the myths and fantasies that they're going to run across in public school and from their peers. So that's part of what has to happen in the progress. And then when you get up a little further into elementary school, up around fifth grade or sixth grade, you can start dealing with some of the more uh, technical things about creation and evolution and the environment and morals. and I mean, these kids are using words and they know about body parts that you and I weren't even too concerned with when we were, when we were that age. We had no idea. And they're, they're seeing it everywhere. So parents have to train these kids and prepare them ahead of time. And so we need to do that. And then we need to go on into... Um, high school. Now, all, m- many of you have listened to and are familiar with uh, Charlie Clough's Framework series. Well, there's also a, cu- a couple from Singapore, uh, Amos and Jen Kwok, K-W-O-K, and they have uh, produced a series based on Charlie's Framework series to teach at the high school level, and it's called Interlocked. Interlocked online, dot online, Okay, we'll have the link up there. And they have written a whole curriculum, 55 lessons. But from people I've worked with and people I've talked to because they're using this with the uh, Camperete Monday Night Bible Study, uh, that they've been going through it, but it's so far they've gone through those 55 lessons. They haven't even gone through all 55 lessons in three years. So there's a lot to talk about. But what I need to do is I need to train the current and future prep school teachers. And I need to continue training the prep school directors, and they need to learn this inside and out and use it with their kids, their own kids at home. I can't do that and something else. So what we're all going to do on Tuesday night in about six weeks is we're going to go through all that material. And um, I'll be teaching it the way I teach things. Uh, it's, it's a good Bible overview. It's very important. A lot of Christians never have a biblical overview. They don't understand how all the parts fit together. They've been exposed in, with good Bible teaching, good doctrinal Bible teaching, where there's such a drill down into all the parts of a verse that they don't see how the verse fits into the paragraph or the paragraph into the section of the epistle or that section into the overall theme and purpose of the epistle. The same thing with Old Testament books. They don't understand. They spend so much time looking at the parts, they don't understand the whole. So that's another value of going through this 
uh, interlocked series is it gives us that bird's eye view of what God is doing and why the Bible is laid out the way it is. Because God had a specific purpose in mind in revealing himself through these episodes with human beings in the Old Testament and showing what they did and what they did not do so that we could learn from that and learn things about God, learn about his grace, learn about his goodness, learn about our sinfulness. And we look at the people in Judges, and we're not any better, sadly. So we have to learn this. So it's going to provide people with, with an overview, which is, which is very helpful. So that's what we're going to do as we get into this in our, um, in our coming in our coming study, and I knew I lost a page here somewhere. So this is what we're going to be doing. It's going to include a little bit out of Charlie's framework. There's two or three people who are teaching this interlocked material right now, and I'm going to have some conversations with Charlie next week. I'm trying to figure out just what the best way will be to do this, but it's going to be good for y'all because they, they have all this written out, so you can... Uh, download the lessons and print them out and read them ahead of time and then I'll walk us through this. I've been doing this with uh, Alex and with uh, Russell uh, for the last five or six months and it just takes time to get through this. So we'll get some more details out for everybody as we go along but that's what we have coming up. So And it's important I think for everybody in the congregation to have this kind of an overview instead of uh, more of a drill down. We'll look at a lot of doctrines. We'll bring in different things related to archaeology. So it's it's kind of a mix. It's not just like ex- an exegetical type exposition. It involves uh, doctrines. It involves an understanding of archaeology and science and evidence for Christianity, apologetics. It involves a lot of practical guidelines because what's important among other things, is that we have to learn to think biblically. And if we don't really understand the Bible, how can we think biblically? Because God presented stuff to us in a specific way for a specific reason. So that's what we'll be, that's what we'll be going through. So let's open our Bibles to Judges, um, Judges 17, even though, um, no, you don't need, we're not going to get there very much because I want to talk about some background tonight is how did they get to where, where we are? What's happening in Judges chapter uh, 17? And what we should recognize is that the account of the Judges, there are a lot of issues related to dating, so my dates are just approximate. But you have the exodus that occurs in 1446 B.C. Forty years later, they enter the land under Joshua with the conquest in what would be 1406. And then the conquest probably takes about three or four years. So you get down to about 1402 BC. And what the scripture tells us is that in Judges 2-7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done. So we'll be generous and say that goes to about 1360. And then we know that Saul becomes king approximately 1050. So you have 300 years that's covered by this period. 300 years of this apostasy. Just think about how hard that was. That is difficult. And we have this statement in 2.7. And then skipping the next couple of verses... What we read in verse 10 is when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So the generations of Joshua and the elders failed to teach and pass on their value system and the importance of the word of God to the next generation. Now, what's interesting is who were the parents of the of the conquest generation? That was the Exodus generation, and they were rebellious, and they didn't. They were always rebelling against Moses' authority and the authority of Aaron and the authority of God, and and God had to discipline them, and they were so rebellious that God 
kept them from entering into the promised land. And that generation had to completely die, but their children were obedient. Their children were obedient, and their children went into the land, and they're the ones who conquered Jericho by simply following God's orders and walking around the walls every day for six days in complete silence, and then seven times on the last day. And then they blew their uh, ram's horns, their shofars, and the walls came down. That strategy hasn't been taught in any military institute that I'm aware of. Because the battle is the Lord's. The battle isn't dependent ultimately on who we are, what we do. It's dependent upon the Lord. And so you have a situation there where you have parents who are a spiritually rebellious generation. The children are spiritually obedient, but then the next generation comes along and they're spiritually apostate. So what we read is that after that generation died in verse 11, then, important time word, then the children of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord and enslaved themselves to the Baals. They became slaves to the fertility gods. And they abandoned the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. See, when God is your king, because that's what is set up in the Mosaic law, when God is your king and you worship other gods, you're a traitor. And you're you're worthy of death. That's why there's a death penalty for idolatry in in the Mosaic law. It's not just because God's a meanie. He's trying to protect the nation from their own sinfulness. So they abandoned God. And they went after these other gods, and they bowed down to them, and it provoked the Lord to anger. Now, what we've seen in Judges is in the first part, in one one down to 3.6, that's the introduction. It describes and summarizes how Israel uh, went from spiritual victory at the very beginning to being worse than the Canaanites at the end. They are more violent, they are more sexually perverted than the Canaanites. And the Canaanites up to that point were the worst. They had an incomplete obedience, they compromised, and it led to complete failure. And so God takes them through those disciplinary cycles that he promised in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. The second part is showing how in, in the the summary of one one through three six, mostly in three one through six, how that summary plays out in the leadership. And you go through the cycles of the leaders, starting with Othniel and then Ehud and then Barak and De- uh, Deborah, and then you get to um, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. So that's the that's what happens, and then. We just finished that section. So the last part, which, and I have used this terminology. It's probably not the best terminology to call this an appendix because what it's showing is first there's an indictment on the, on the leadership because when you adopt paganism, guess what kind of leaders you're going to get? And that's what we've had. We want to know why do we have this, this kind of demented, forgetful, absent-minded a clunky man for a president because take all those adjectives and that describes this nation that's what we have not everyone but that's the majority of people here think that way because they bought into that and what God is telling us is you may think you're so bright and on the cutting edge of societal evolution and all this other stuff but guess what look at the guy in the White House that's what you're really like You've got a culture of people who, who are incompetent. And so we go from the paganization of the leadership to the paganization of the priests. And then the paganization of the people. The priests in se- chapters 17 and 18 and the people in chapters 19 and uh, tw- 20 and 21. So that's where we are. So tonight is just, I'm giving you an introduction to this. So we go through the cycles 
each one worse than the one before. Othniel is the one about whom nothing bad is said, and then the last one, Samson, is the one about whom nothing good is said. It gets worse. But it's not just these guys. It's the people and the priests. They're apostate also. So as we're looking at the background to Judges, let's put it in the perspective of where it fits in God's revelation. You get the foundation in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's no surprise that that, those are the most attacked chapters in the Bible. Because if you don't have the first 11 chapters as actual historical reality, then the rest of the Bible collapses. Those 11 chapters are the most important And then you get to chapter 12, which is even more important. But chapter 12 with the call of Abraham is built on the historical, the literal historical reality of 1 through 11. So you have the creation, the fall, and the flood. Those are the first three events. You also have the first four divine institutions. The first three are before their sin. You have personal responsibility, marriage, and family. That really falls apart before the flood. After the flood, in the covenant with Noah, God is going to uh, institute a human government and delegate responsibility to humans to adjudicate the, and punish the criminals among them. Then the second thing that happens is we see the failure of the Gentiles at the Tower of Babel. Why is that so important? Because when God divided up the languages, it forced people to segregate according to who they could hear and understand and communicate with. And once you segregated according to languages, and then you began to replicate and propagate according to those same people, then you had certain genetic traits that rose to the top. And thus you created different ethnic groups which led to uh, nations. And Acts 17, I think it's Acts 17.21, I may be wrong on the verse, but that is where Paul says that God established the boundaries. Daniel 2 tells us that God raises up kingdoms and God takes down kingdoms. So the failure at Babel led to the creation of nations. And a lot of people say when you look at all the wars that have taken place over boundary rights and over, over countries and you look at all those horrors, how could God have, have allowed for there to be this division? How would you answer that? Well, first of all, God's omniscient, so he knows what would happen if he had not had nations. And so God, being righteous, chose to divide the human race up because if they weren't divided and broken up into nations, it would have been even worse. So God protected us by dividing us up. And what happened at that same time is a realization that the, that the human race as a whole is in rebellion against God, and so God goes to, as it were, plan B, but it was never his plan B. He always knew what was going to happen. So he creates the fifth divine institution, which is nations, and then, because the nations have failed, he is going to graciously select Abraham and his descendants through whom he will not only communicate his word, and they will write it down and preserve his word, but it is through them that the Savior will come. The fulfillment of that promise to Eve regarding, the, uh, the, regarding her seed, that her seed would crush the head of the, of the serpent. So this creates Israel as the sixth divine institution because God said, I will bless those who bless you and harshly judge those who treat you lightly. It's usually translated in English, I will curse those who curse you, but the first word for curse is a different word from the second word for curse. So the first word for curse has to do with a harsh punishment, and the harsh punishment is for those who disrespect Israel. It's a 
another word that just means to treat them lightly. And so since that applies to believer and unbeliever alike, it's like marriage, family, government, and nations. It applies to believers and unbelievers alike. So we have to understand this this whole framework is why we have nations and why one nation is so different and what's different about them. And Deuteronomy says, I didn't choose you because you were so great or you were so smart or you were so attractive because you're the most stiff-necked people on earth. God is demonstrating his grace all through this. Nobody deserves it. Fourth, the next big event is the Mosaic Law. This is the constitution of a theocratic nation. A theocracy is not a hierocracy that is from the Latin root for priesthood. That's what most people think of when they think of a, a theocracy. And you have liberals who hate God accuse Christians, uh, the so-called Christian right and Christian conservatives, of wanting to establish a theocracy. And I have a book at home with, where one man who was in George Bush's uh, administration and is putatively a Christian, you know, has all these horrible things to say about the leaders of the so-called Christian right. But I know most of them. And I could read that chapter, and I could tell you that that no, nothing that he said is accurate about those individuals. But that's how the left is, because they haven't adopted... He's one of those middle-of-the-roaders in that category. They've got something of a biblical worldview, but they've got half their worldview is really made up of paganism, because they haven't let the Bible be the authority uh, in their life. So the test in the Mosaic Law is loyalty to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the framework for understanding the Mosaic Law. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12 Uh, focuses on the exclusivity of the nation's worship. In chapter 12, the focus is on the unity of worship that should be in the nation Israel. In chapter 13, it talks about the unity of, of, uh, of teaching because and there should be a punishment for apostates and those who claim to be prophets and aren't, and the punishment is a death penalty. In chapters 14 and 15, the focus is on a a, a unified culture where everyone is doing certain things the same. And chapter 16 talks about the unity of certain national feast days because they all represent important teaching of Scripture. And the whole nation needs to learn this and implement this in their life. But I want you to look, let's look at the first four verses of Uh, chapter 12. Moses says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. He's talking to the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's telling them, God's given you this land, and it's yours. He's given you the title deed to this land as long as you Jewish people live on the earth. That's your land. But what he's going to say later is, if you don't do what I say to do, I'm going to take you out of that land. I'm not taking away the title deed. I'm just taking you out of it. You can't enjoy the blessing of God in the land I've given you if you're not walking in obedience. So so Moses says, these are the statutes and judgments which you'll carefully observe, uh, which... In the land which the Lord your God, never forget that. It's the only piece of real estate in the earth that God gave to anybody. He didn't give Texas to Texans as much as we wish that were true. He didn't give France to the French, and they're about to lose it. He didn't give Germany to the Germans. They're about to lose it. Same with the Italians. So every nation has taken certain territory, but only Israel has a God-given right to the land. And Moses goes on to say in verse 2, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their God. Pay attention to that. 
you're to go into that land because this is my land that I've given you that any other God is an interloper. He is an enemy. And you are to destroy all the places that are set up in my land to worship any other God. You shall dis- utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you sh- shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And then in verse 3 it says, And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. That's the fertility goddess. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and you shall obliterate their name from that place. That's a pretty strong statement. Guess what happens with the generation that comes after Joshua and the elders? They didn't do that. And what happens? They destroy themselves. In summary, in verse 4, it says, You shall not worship their Lord your God with such things. So he is eliminating all competitive religious systems in the land. They have to be totally eradicated from the land. Second thing we see here is that it authorizes the destruction of all other unauthorized worship centers. And later what we see is that God only authorizes one worship place, and that's on the Temple Mount in Israel. And he says, you can't worship me anywhere else. Some people say, well, that's that's unreasonable. Well, if you're God and you created everything... Don't you have the right to tell people how they are to worship you, that some ways are legitimate and some ways are illegitimate? You just don't want God to be God because you want to worship the creature instead of the creator. It's the height of arrogance. So God authorizes the destruction of all unauthorized worship centers. And third, it's an emphasis on exclusivity. There's only one right way. There's only one right place. And there's only one right way to do it. And that's my way. Because since I'm omniscient and I know all there is to know, I know what it works and what doesn't work and what's, what will make you a successful nation and what will not make you a successful nation. And your knowledge is probably a billionth of the size of the smallest molecule in the ocean compared to my knowledge, which is bigger than all the oceans and lakes and other uh, bodies of water on the planet. You don't know anything, and you think you know so much. So God has a right to to authorize all this, and, and unbelievers hate this exclusivity on the part of the Bible. They hate that. They hated it in the time of ju- judges as well. They went after all the other gods. Verse 5 says, But you shall seek the Lord at the place that you determine. Oh, he didn't say that, did he? You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. Now, see, the reason I'm putting this in the background is when we get into Judges 17, they're going to set up an alternate worship center. And we have to understand that's in direct violation of the law. Uh, Verse 6 says, And there you shall bring, not any place you want, but there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. This is called the law of the central sanctuary. There's only going to be one place to worship. And that's going to be where I tell you. First, it was the tabernacle. And for over 300 years, the tabernacle was located where? Almost 400 years. It was located at Shiloh. I hope we get to go there. There's some rumblings in the oh Arab ter- territories that we have to be careful of. But I'm hoping we can go there. And the guy to talk a little bit about this, maybe he won't talk at it formally during the conference, but Henry Smith is the administrative director of the archaeological dig at Shiloh. And so he is uh, knowledgeable about a lot of stuff that's been going on there. 
So it establishes the law of the central sanctuary, and it establishes the the methodology for how ritual and worship will be conducted. Anything else is wrong. doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's wrong. Man cannot generate his own idea of worship. We don't bring to God what makes us feel good about ourselves that we have worshiped God. And that statement condemns about 98% of what's going on on Sunday morning in churches in this country. We have to let God define, define worship. Later in the chapter, we read in verse 8, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today. This is Moses talking to the people. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Where have you heard that before? It's like the writer of Judges didn't make that up. Moses said it first. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes, for as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. They were still outside the land. So we go to verses 11 to 14. And there we read, Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. First at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, and then on the temple mount. There you shall bring all that I commanded you, your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, etc. And verse 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters. What's that? What divine institution is that? Family. The family is the training ground for the next generation. You shall bring your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself. That means watch out. Watch yourself. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see. Why? Because you're still going to see some of these altars left around here and there that weren't destroyed. Don't use them. Only do it in the place where the Lord chooses. So man can't define worship for himself. What a difficult idea for our modern generation. See, what we're seeing uh, is that there are literally hundreds of churches in this country that are now ordaining LGBTQ types, and they are sending them out on the mission field, and they think it's okay for somebody who's a practicing homosexual to be a seminary professor And this is becoming normative in many so-called Christian denominations. Near the end of the chapter we read, When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to possess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared, that is trapped, to follow them after they are destroyed from before you. And what happened? That's exactly what happened. That's uh, Judges chapter 1. They're ensnared after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. Don't follow their example. Verse 31 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. See, there's a right way to worship God and a wrong way to worship God. And we think that because we determine truth that we can worship God however we want to. We're Americans. We have freedom to do what we want to. No, you don't. For It says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. That is a really important verse. The reason I say that's important is because uh, I, as you know, I mentioned it when we went through Jephthah. I wrote my master's thesis on Jephthah, and people were trying, you know, my professors were saying they, they weren't committing uh, human sacrifice as early as Jephthah. And I said, You're wrong. They're com- and I quoted this verse. They were already, that was part of the fertility religions. And then God concludes by saying, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, and you shall not add to it nor take away from it. So that's what we're looking at. We're going through the, we've gone through these sections, the introduction, seeing the cycles. We've gone through the various cycles of the judges, and now we're in the last section where we're looking in chapters 17 and 18 how, how the priests became paganized. 
And there's a surprise at the end. And then we're going to look at how the people became paganized. Take us back to Judges 2, 6 through 9. When Joshua dismissed the people, they went to their own inheritance, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Then, then in verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him. Then in verse 10, it says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. This is a summary of what's coming, coming up. Then the children of the Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice that word evil. Most of the time in the scripture, it is not talking about somebody who just sinned. It's not even talking about somebody who committed murder. It's talking about somebody who was disloyal to God and, and abandoned God and turned to idol worship. And just because we don't have physical idols, we don't go bow down before uh, figures of wood or stone or metal, we have more sophisticated mental and emotional idols. We bow down in our culture to worship the values of the self. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and enslaved themselves. See, when you're not, you're always, we're always slaves. Romans 6, we're slaves to the sin nature or we're slaves to righteousness. We're not ever neutral. And we forget that. We're, we're slaved either to our sin nature and the idols it produces or we're slaves to God. They abandoned the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Notice every time it says this, it always references who he is. He is the God who uh, performed those uh, ten plagues and who uh, parted the Red Sea, who brought you through the wilderness, the God of all those miracles. That's what, it, that's what it's alluding to there. He's not just some God that you go worship that, that's, as Isaiah puts it, you've got, you go out and you cut down a tree and you cut down half of the tree and you cut it up and you burn it for warmth and for cooking inside your hut and you take that other half and you carve it into a figure and you bow down and worship it. How intelligent is that? So the conclusion in verse 13 is they abandoned the Lord and enslaved themselves to Baal and the Ashtoreths. So what we see when we get into chapters 17 to 21 is that this happens at the same time as chapters 3 through 16. But it's telling you how the priest became paganized and then how the people became paganized. So chapters 17 and 18 show how the religious apostasy began, and it came from a priest, a significant priest. But you don't find that out. It's like the punchline at the end of a joke. And then in 19 to 21 describes the gross immorality and the viciousness and the violence and abusiveness of the people. What we need to pay attention to throughout this is religious apostasy, which in this country began really in the early 19th century. It always proceeds to and leads to cultural collapse. Apostasy precedes rampant immorality and violence. You look at this culture. It's not an atheistic culture. It is a highly religious culture. But religion that doesn't worship the God of the Bible is, is self-destructive. So that brings us to the beginning of this section in chapter 17. And by the sixth verse, we get one of the two mentions of the theme verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. What did that mean? No literal king? No. Deuteronomy 33.5 says, and he, context, it's referring to God. He was king in Jeshurun, another name for Israel. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So God, they've been, they, that, that statement is saying they rejected God and they made themselves gods. They, they rejected worship of the creator and they're worshiping the creature. So we'll come back next time and we will get into the beginnings of chapter 
17. Father, thank you for this opportunity. We get such insight from the Scripture on the cause causes of cultural collapse, cultural enslavement, cultural failure. We recognize it all starts with how people view you. Either they respond in obedience or they react in disobedience. And when disobedience is the norm, it leads to complete cultural destruction and collapse. So, Father, we pray that you would help us get some insight as we go through these uh, final chapters of Judges and that we may apply some of these lessons in our families and in our churches and that we will apply these to our nation. And we pray that you might raise up because there are godly men and women who can lead this nation on the basis of a solid biblical worldview. And we pray that we might find them and that they could lead us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.